Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast, episode two, our sophomore entry into this endeavor. Uncle Polly helped kick off the first one, and now we have my old buddy Leon Coventry coming to visit us here in the Bob Media podcast studio. Leon works in the aviation industry, and I've known him for 25 years. We went to high school and college together, so you'll hear plenty of trips down memory lane as we discuss our fun times together. I'm fairly sure Leon will be a regular on the podcast, so I hope you enjoy his contributions. Around the nine-minute mark or so, you will hear a dramatic improvement in the audio. That's because the doll came in and delivered my new microphone while we were recording. So, without further ado, I give you episode two with Leon Coventry. inside of a phoenix home yeah it's not that special i have my war room i, I love it microphone i got a new microphone coming today but amazon did deliver because it's not essential <laughs> anyway how you doing good How's good west it's wonderful this is my office where i have been hunkered down for the last couple of weeks but i do have to go in occasionally i'm enjoying quarantine i won't lie i really? mean i yeah i mean i i know that uh normal life's gonna kick back on eventually but for now, I, I get very little time to spend with my daughter and wife, and you know I'm I'm going to capitalize on it. So, I think I think my daughter actually likes me now, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I found that I developed a much closer relationship with my children. Yeah, I think you still want to kill them as much as you did, but the fact that you're cooped up together is you're finding ways to deal with the fact that they're always around. I'm working on different ways of keeping them occupied, some self coping mechanisms, and you go away. And, and and do this for five minutes or 10 minutes or you know if you really break down you have to cheat i got him watching a movie right now because mom felt that she could run to target and back in a half hour so she's not back yet so they're watching big hero six while i'm in here talking to you whatever works what is your what's your brown liquor of choice right now this is my jam Ooh, that's uh only available, I believe, on cruise ships these days. It's Costco special. Oh, nice. And I'll have you know, this is not every Costco. If you go to one Costco, it will not have the same selection as another Costco. And it's like some of the Costcos are Walmart, some of the Costcos are Whole Foods. And it really depends on the income of the area, which I suppose makes sense. It's fucking annoying. So the one by my house has a whole ton of tequila. Like if you yeah. In the tequila, it's floor to ceiling. Tequila for days. I got to go to the rich neighborhood to get brown stuff. <laughs> so. You know, at least you get liquor in yours. I have two Costco's within 10 minutes of me, 20 minutes. Okay, talk about that. No liquor. Uh, oh, you mean in, in uh, Costco's in, in Ohio? Yeah, how does it work? It's... Uh, now you, you can get wine, like they have an amazing wine selection, but there is no liquor. And it's brutal because there's, you know, they got Kirkland bourbon, Kirk and Kirkland scotch, all those different things. We can't get those here. Sometimes I'll actually go down to Kentucky or uh, other states and I can get all those things. You know that, you know, basically that Kirkland V vodka is, is, is virtually great goose. It's, yeah, that's what it's the same thing. So, but I'm, I'm just such a bourbon fanatic now that 
I don't know. It probably happened about three years ago, but I went full in on bourbon. All right. Oh, I could talk bourbon for days. Okay. All right. Favorite bourbon then. Favorite bourbon in the nice glass case back there. What's uh, what's in the presentation bottle? Yes. Uh, that is a crystal. I have two different uh, displays. If you can't see them, I can. This one is a uh, a nice Scotch, a Johnny Walker variety. This is actually the Kirkland bourbon that somebody gave to me, and uh, it's like it's a world. The glasses are worlds too. But tonight's selection is uh, Stag Junior. Very, very rare. S-T-A-G-G. Stag Junior. Okay. My favorite bourbon is Elijah Craig. Really? You like Elijah Craig? All right. Have you had Blanton's? That's the best. No. If you can get it, it's a good bourbon. When I first started getting into bourbon, I went down, I did the Buffalo Trace Distillery, which, by the way, is also a, it's a national landmark. It was one of the few distilleries that was never shut down for the prohibition. They had special licensing to do medicinal alcohol, whatever the hell that is. But they kept running. They're one of the few, them, Maker's Mark. What what comes out of the Buffalo Trace Distillery is the cream of the crop, as far as I'm concerned, of bourbon out there. Most of the big names out there. So obviously Buffalo Trace. Blanton's my favorite out there. And they have little horses on top of the, the bottles. And all of them are in a different gallop position. And there's a letter on there b-l-a-n-t-o-s so you can if you get enough you can spell out blanton's and the horse looks like it's running i'm getting close i'm only one letter off but weller comes out of there e.h taylor is a very popular one that comes out of there there's quite a few that come out of the buffalo trace distillery but one of the most famous is pappy pappy van winkle actually yes. comes up there too. pretty impressive i was there a couple weeks ago did the did some of the ones on the on the bourbon tour i started buffalo trace then i went to bullet they couldn't be more different like the way you're going to describe the two buffalo trace tells you all about the magic that goes into bourbon and all the love of the history and the tradition and how they do everything and great example is you do a tasting at the end which is eagle rare eagle rare and buffalo trace which is a very common type of bourbon are exactly the same recipe. They're actually aged the exact amount of time and they're aged in the exact same type of barrel in the exact same warehouse. They taste totally different. And the difference is Eagle Rare is aged on the very bottom rack and Buffalo Trace is on the top, top racks. And because heat rises, the barrels swell. So the bourbon goes in and out of the oak barrels much more on the top. So it actually smooths out the taste. The barrels on the bottom racks are, uh, they don't go in and out with the temperature because the temperature doesn't change as much at the bottom. So it's a very bitey bourbon. Fascinating. Same exact everything other than where it's positioned in the racks of the warehouse but i went there and then i went to bullet and bullet was literally science like they figured out i know how to make bourbon i know what the recipe is but let's just make four of them let's not try to pretend something we're not because we don't have all that history and we don't have all that tradition behind us what we do know is how to make bourbon how to do it quickly how to do it efficiently. If you go to Bullet the Distillery, it's all extremely modern, very scientific. They crank out bourbon like no other, but they've never tried to pretend like they're something they're not. They've always been kind of a mixer bourbon more than anything else. They got four kinds, you know, one of them's a rye and that's it. That's what they do. But then I went to uh, Angel's Envy. It's not technically a bourbon because it doesn't spend its whole life in a virgin barrel. It does age as a bourbon, and then the last couple months they finish it in a port barrel. So it's got like a sweet finish to it. It's legit. It is really delicious too. So 
big big fan of Angel's Envy. I think that's actually the glass I have today. You know, being so close to the bourbon trail, it's hard not to fall in love with it. One of these days you're going to have to come out and we'll, we'll do a lesson in brown liquor. The whole thing's fascinating. I mean, if, if you've ever been to Germany and tried their beer, you know how specific they are about all the rules that have to go into German beer. You can't call it a German beer unless you follow certain rules of, I guess, engagement of how to make the beer, what alcohol level it's got to be at, what your hop level is. All that is highly regulated in Germany. I would say bourbon is uh, the same. I, I wasn't a big whiskey fan in general until I started really getting into bourbon because I didn't know what I liked and I didn't like about whiskey and then when I started getting into bourbon, I realized how different all of them can be and what I like about the different kinds. And what's interesting about bourbon that's different about other whiskeys, scotch, American whiskey like Jack Daniels or any of the other ones is, yes, it's a virgin barrel. The It's always the same kind of wood. The wood always has to be charred. The, the lumber comes from the Ozarks. Uh, it's almost all from the same farmer. I mean, 85% come from the same forest. All of that is highly regulated. The temperature has to be a certain mix and the mash has to be so much corn or so much wheat. I can't remember the exact number, but that's what makes it bourbon. A lot of the new ryes are coming out. They follow everything about bourbon other than that their rye mix is a little bit higher. If you ever want to impress anybody and do a taste testing, any type of whiskey really from the U.S., if you want to, if you drink it blind and you get that warm Kentucky hug, it burns down your chest. That's mostly, uh, that's the corn that's burning you up. So that's, that's a typical bourbon whiskey. But if you have none of that Kentucky hug, none of that burn in your chest, but more in your jaw, well, that's a rye. That's how you know if you're going to go blindfold on which one's the rye and which one more of a corn wheat based. That's a level of knowledge I wasn't expecting. I'm thoroughly impressed. Good for you. Well, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Deep pulp. <laughs> Alcohol sales are up 30% across the world and uh, a very timely time for a, a brown liquid podcast i mean your timing's impeccable for launching this so how's uh how's the uh the mic transfer going well i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna switch over now you're excited how about now you hear me now that's way better by the way boom <laughs> technology it's light years better all right so um you're in the aviation industry and you were an aviation professional yeah so without divulging too much uh, when you read in the news of what's going on, all of these guys are hurting and they're dying off pretty wickedly. It's likely that they're going to have to get bailouts. And uh, Uncle Polly in the first episode seemed to think that the airlines had a better lobbying position. So it's more likely that they're going to get a bailout. What do you yeah. think, in your professional opinion, what do you think the state of the airline industry is? No, I, I think they are going to get bailed out. I think all the majors, they are getting bailed out. I think they had like uh, $32 billion dedicated to the airlines. Some of that, I think six or so was dedicated to the cargo cargo segment, which really actually isn't hurting right now. They're thriving because they got to move product. We all still need, desperately need product. I think a lot of people don't understand how big the passenger airlines, the Americans, the Deltas, the Southwests are in moving cargo too. Yeah. You know, a lot of our mail goes via passenger airline. I'm in, I'm in that area, but I'm also in logistics area too. Right. Okay. So I'm very tuned into how hard it is to get things moved from A to B right now, not just internationally. It's becoming very difficult domestically, especially when all of the different airlines are canceling their routes left and right. You know, my parents just 
recently flew right before a lot of the sanctions were put on California and they were moving from California to Hawaii. And right as all that was happening, probably about two and a half, three weeks ago, they were flying and they were three of seven people on that flight from LA to Honolulu. The airlines are getting crushed. And if you've ever seen the images of, you know, American parked over, I think it's some Pittsburgh airport, Delta, they're just, you know, tail to tail, parking lot of airplanes. It's it's hard to it's hard to see. Right now, ours included are 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 experiencing about five percent to 7% of the traffic we should be right now. That's brutal. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that happens, so the the virus hits and everybody starts looking at your budget. You figure the first thing that's going to get cut is travel. Travel Mm -hmm. is usually the first thing of any corporate budget that gets knocked. And they go, all right, do your job from home. So then it's phone call and email. And then you start, because we we do use this and we use Microsoft Teams. Uh, And then you figure sales and marketing budgets after that. So I figured, well, I don't need to travel. So I'll just cut it and wait. But then you started seeing everybody else cut. And then it was, I can't fly. Uh, But I mean, my, my, the key industry of my day job is down 90%. Yeah. So I mean, all, all the stuff slows down. When you're confined to your house, which is the direction of nearly the entire world, it really hurts everything. And I think I think we're all starting to feel the effects of what that actually means and when you shut down that type of infrastructure. I mean, being in the travel industry in general, all of the downstream effects that happen when you're shutting down an industry, it's an industry. It's not, it's not an airline because that airline flies from an airport to an airport, which employs thousands and thousands of employees, which also brings in supplies that are created by thousands and thousands of employees. And then all the other ancillary businesses, hotels, rental car companies, you got all these other companies that are very, very dependent on on getting from A to B. Pick your political side, it doesn't matter. But when you do hear the president say, we got to save the airlines, he's not saying we need to bail out my friends. He's saying that these are feeders to so many other industries that have to be saved. And and I understand why uh, it's very, I mean, you got to, you got to bail out banks, you got to bail out airlines, you got to bail them out. Because if you don't, if you can't move from A to B, now now maybe they'll come back up, right? If you're a true capitalist, if there's a need, then yeah. something will pop up and fill the need. It's just how long will that take? And if you want to respond quickly, if you're looking for more of a V-shaped recovery than a U-shaped recovery, you need to do what you can to to, to bail them out. Yeah. So yeah, and I think that's the part that people may not understand when you're talking about an ecosystem. I understand why the automobile companies got bailed out back in 2009. It was because the automobile companies are the final assembly of thousands of individual parts. That's right. Dozens of individual industries. And so you're not just killing the person who assembles the car. You're killing the rubber manufacturers. You're killing the titanium and aluminum people. You're killing the wiring people. You're killing the plastics industry. You're killing the, most cars still have leather. So, I mean, you're you're killing that part of the industry as well. So it, it makes sense to have some kind of an economic recovery in terms of the bailout. The thing about the bailouts that I think make people uncomfortable is... It shouldn't be a grant. It's like, yeah, you in a capitalist system, you take risk. Yeah. So if you take shares in a company, that's risk. You realize the benefit of your investment or you realize the loss of your investment. So what I liked about what the what the automobile companies did, I think, is the bailout came in the form of equity. It was, we'll give you a whole bunch of money, but it's a purchase. 
It's not a loan. It's not a grant. And I'm hoping in some senses that we do the same with the airline because I do think it is critical infrastructure. I also know that they've been consolidated a lot over the years. Now, there are private outfits, there are individual travel companies, but for the most part, you used to have somewhere in the neighborhood of what, like 40 or 50 different airlines? Mm -hmm. And now you pretty much got United, Delta, and American. Southwest. Southwest, JetBlue, they're, they're players, but really, you've got the big three and a couple of stragglers where you used to have, I mean, every time I got on, a, on an American plane, I would see the little conglomerate of all of the companies that they swallowed. So it's got America West, it's got US Airways, it's got Canada Regional. And then you look at that and you go, yeah, those were all individual airlines once upon a time. And they got swallowed up by this gigantic conglomerate that is American Airlines. And yep. you think to yourself, all right, you guys wanted to own the market. You wanted to have more scale. You wanted to be able to do these things. Probably wanted to have a safety net in place. I, I honestly couldn't agree more. You should be preparing for a downturn, especially after what are we, nine, 10 years in a bull market? <laughs> you should have known at some point. Where's your disaster <laughs> recovery plan, man? This That's ride's right. gonna end. That's right. Uh, nobody could have predicted this at this rate. Nobody could have, let's be honest. But I think I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it should come without strings attached. The taxpayers deserve more than just handing over our money and saying, you know, do better next time. I, yeah. I get that, you know. Yeah. So you look at the different airlines and you look at, uh, and you can probably speak to this better than I can, but the efficiencies of their fleet, I thought always interested me. I'm pretty sure it was you that told me that Southwest only flies 737s. That's right. Yep. Okay. So then they've got some standardized part lists. They've got uniquely trained mechanics that can handle any plane in the fleet because they don't have lots of different planes. But then you've got a number of different sevens. You've got some DC tens, maybe some old McDonnell Douglas and, and you've got a variety of Airbus and a bunch of different manufacturers. So somebody like American that keeps all these old birds in the air has to have a pretty robust supply chain for all the different models, all the different makes, and then all the different mechanics that they have to staff up and train to be able to handle all of this. That to me strikes a bloat that probably does need a little bit of pain for them to realize that there are much better ways to be more efficient. I'm not even talking about the fuel argument. Right. I'm just talking about, guys, what if your planes were solar? Like you got to do better than this. So it'll be interesting to see how the smaller guys like Southwest and JetBlue do if they can scale down as fast as they can scale up. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to getting yourself or getting your fleet down to the minimal level possible. I think Southwest works because their model flies what they fly. I don't think it would be great for the United States if all airlines were just like Southwest because a 737, no matter which version you fly, isn't always the best model to fly from A to B. I picked American because I was a U.S. Airways guy, and I was a U.S. Airways guy because I was dating my wife, and she lived in Philly. So Philly was a U.S. Airways hub. I was America West when I first started flying for work, and I loved America West. I thought it was great. I thought everything about what I knew of the reservation system at the time, but I thought the planes were comfortable. I thought the crew was great. Well, that Southwest was too. I just, I got to the point where I went, I don't want to do this 24 hour rat race where I got to log in and, and do this first come first serve bullshit. It's like, just I'll, I'll pay. Give me a seat. Yep. Yep. So I, a lot of people still love Southwest and I think it's a, it's an amazing organization. I really like their system. Their staff are always amazing, but you know, I, I just, I want to book it. I want to know I got a seat and I don't have to deal with it. Right. So I ended up going with them. And then I picked American because at the time my career was probably going to take me in the realm of South America. And, and America is really good at going down. Yeah, very, very much. They got South America locked down. 
so that was uh, that was a happy accident that I ended up moving to Phoenix because they're still one of their hubs is in Phoenix. And mm -hmm. even though you can cook an egg on the sidewalk in the summertime, it's still not a lot of inclement weather. Like Chicago's murder, even Dallas, which is their major hub, you get these random thunderstorms. Yeah. Here's what I want to know. I'm not a Twilight fan, but I do know that Twilight was set in Seattle because of their weather. But I'll just tell you right now that Seattle may have more rainy days than Columbus, Ohio. We have definitely more cloudy days. So they should have set it up here. Uh, I envy every bit of sunshine you have. You can go fuck yourself. because I'll take I, that. I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I did, like every other Californian, I pissed and moaned about the 120-degree summers. It starts in June, and it's gone by mid-September. So if you can survive three and a half months of discomfort, that basically puts you in about 45 other states. Yeah. So there's, there's that kind of California exceptionalism that I found now that I've moved out of the bubble. That yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, so I, a couple of months out of the year, I'm uncomfortable, but I have a lower standard of living. I'm happier. I have money to spend. You know, my house isn't worth a gajillion dollars, but I'm pretty happy with what I got going on. And then if I think about some of the situations that people in the North deal with, I don't have to shovel sand out of my driveway to get to work. Uh, there is one thing that I think is just the nature of, of human anatomy. I can't peel my skin off if it gets too hot. You can put on a coat. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you know what? It's, it's green. The air, the air smells a little different here. I mean, I got everything around me is green. It sucks that it's raining all the time, but it's, it's fucking green. lake in your backyard. There's a lake I can fish in my backyard. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. That part I do like. Uh, honestly, I don't mind winter being, uh, you know, raised in California, not having it. Out here, I actually enjoy it. It's just probably about six weeks too long. I like it when it comes, when the snow starts to fall in the winter. Love it. Love it. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, having a white Christmas is amazing. And I think, you know, the people of the Midwest, are, I just love them. They, I think... We jive they are really great people. I, they, we jive more than I did with Californians, I think, in a lot of ways. I, out here, I, I don't get the same keeping up with the Joneses type mentality. If, you, if, if the guy next to me gets a Tesla, it doesn't make me feel like I need to get a Tesla, you know? Uh, so it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit different mentality out here. But I like all four seasons, even if uh, winter is probably a little too long of one. I like them all. If you don't around here, if you don't like the season, just hang around a little bit. It'll go away. And I feel like that's probably the same in Phoenix, Arizona in general. If you're, I, I don't know how far Flagstaff is from you, but I think that stays pretty cold for a while, it's right? Two hours. And the thing about going to Flagstaff is you wouldn't know you're not in Denver. Yeah. I put it probably more towards Colorado Springs because there's not a lot of infrastructure up there. I mean, Flagstaff is, is a, it's a Route 66 town. So once I-17 came in, Basically, you, you go to Flagstaff because you want to go to Flagstaff. You don't happen to run into Flagstaff anymore. So right. the hotels are kind of older. The infrastructure is older. There's a pretty, pretty vibrant college scene up there, believe it or not. But if you go up through Flagstaff, you wouldn't know you're not in Colorado. I mean, we're right at the tip of the Rockies right here. So two hours from here puts you square in Boulder or any of those places we used to go with Troy right outside Denver. I mean, it's, it's a different world. It's absolutely amazing. So our, our mutual friend said... The, the weather's one thing, but he seems to think there's a different mindset once you get out of California, and he calls it hustle culture. Huh. 
So this is just my observation. He says, everybody out here, they drive a little slower. They take their time getting where they're going. He says, they're not house poor. So they all got toys and that's true. There's some $60,000 pickup trucks around here. Everybody's got a, a side by side and we're looking at getting one. It may not have trees and greenery, but there's trails, there's hiking, there's Lake Pleasant, a couple miles north of here. I mean, there, there is an outdoorsy vibe here, despite sandstorms and, and uh, really harsh sunlight. He described it as hustle culture because everybody's got to have something going on because they're so house poor. So having a side gig, you know, like what I'm doing, it's, it's something to occupy my mind. But in California, you have to. Everybody's got uh, essential oils or makeup or wine or bags or skincare products or all of those vertical marketing schemes seem to hit Californians because they don't have any money. They're <laughs> sitting on enormous wealth if they own a house, but they are not liquid at all. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this translates. I, I think it translates to the Midwest, but that was his theory. He said, I think that's why it's so different here. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to suffer for your house out here. Right. It changes your mindset. Yeah, it does. I, I think there's a lot to that. I think that there's a lot to, it doesn't matter where you live in all honesty. I mean, I've been in neighborhoods in California, neighborhoods here. It's your neighborhood that makes you happy, right? If you got good neighbors that, you have this sense of community. You want to do something with them. That's what everybody's aiming for. It really doesn't matter anything yeah. else. Yeah. Uh, that's what, uh, you know, we just bought this new house out here about two and a half years ago. It's a brand new neighborhood. Meant the reason we, we, we went a little bit house poor by purchasing this house. We don't need this, this house at all. We don't need the square footage at all. What we wanted was there's so many families here that have, kids from the age of zero to 10. And with my daughter being in that, you know, three to four year old range and knowing we're probably not going to have another, that was the way to go. That's what yeah. we're paying for, right? We're paying for school district and everything else that comes into this area. But at the end of the day, I just want cool fucking neighbors. That's what I want. Yeah. And there's nothing uniquely Californian about that. No. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's something that you get outside the bubble. Um, the ironic part about it, and I think this was one of the things that Hardwick was joking about, was there seems to be this one-sided war uh, against California, and people out here just hate Californians. Really? Yeah, you're bringing your money and your and you're bringing your your money and your politics with you. It's like you're driving up real estate prices and you're voting Democrat, and you know you don't like guns and you don't revere the military. And, and I'm thinking to myself, gun? You don't own a gun yet? When we were in California, I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's, things are kind of good here. You know, but then you go out and it's like, ah, fucking Californians. Oh, that's so funny. Whenever I tell anybody that I'm from California, they're always like, why are you here? <laughs> why did you leave? Yeah, what idiot. Why, here? Why did you pick here? <laughs> that's what I get. You're pretty close to it, though. You, you do have uh, some escapees coming out of the state. But you know it, what it's like. It I is a mass exodus out here. Like half the people we've met are from California. Get out. They're That's like, great. yeah, we had to get the fuck out. And when we talk to people back in California, they're like, oh, good for you guys. We've been yeah. talking about it. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Talk, do it. Yeah. I mean, at some point, but, I mean, it's got to burst, right? Like I talk to people and I'm like, what are you paying to live in what? That's insanity. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking to Jay. I'm talking to Jay tomorrow night. And... 
he's got a really nice house. It's quaint. It's on a little street. And the thing he's got going for him is he's got a really big backyard. So he's got room to expand. But his house is about the size of my El Moro house, the one that we used to play slosh ball behind. Yeah. And he paid like seven fifty for it. Oh. And that was a deal. Listen, 20 years ago, going to college in a shitty fucking apartment, I don't even know how long it was, in Santa Barbara, how much did we pay in those days is astronomical. I needed, yeah. I needed two other roommates to live in a roach-filled fucking apartment. Yeah, Santa Barbara. I mean, so you can get a three-bedroom house on the ocean in 2000 for 3200 a month yeah that's crazy money yeah. <laughs> 500, 500 bucks for each of us to share a room in a little three-bedroom pos condo now yeah. granted usury absolute uh manipulation and taking advantage of the student body populace but do you know you do know because you were there you know how wonderful it is to wake up to the ocean it was the best thing of all time. To be able to pee into the water. And then the day you saw the keg in the tide, <laughs> I knew you pulled the American <laughs> Beauty line. I was like, That's was. Just, that one's, I'm just writing that one in my brain right now because that one's never going to leave. We were silent trying to recover from what happened the night prior, standing on your patio, looking at the waves. I don't think we said a word to each other for 20 minutes. We just sat there drinking coffee, hoping that our heads would feel like they came back together. Was it Watching that? Was it yeah. that morning? Yeah, it was that morning. It was that all-nighter. And then we sat there, silent, looking at a keg, <laughs> just washing out to sea and washing back into the beach for 20 minutes. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was. It was poetry. Because somebody's got to go down and get that fucking thing. <laughs> you know, you got to get the deposit back. This, come on. This is, we're paying 500 bucks a month, but this isn't. Come on now. It was, look, it was worth every penny, but when you stand back here where we're at today and go, holy shit, I can't Oh, no, yeah, fucking disgusting. That was, that was one of those ideas where you think to yourself, okay, location really is everything. But if you were back in the apartment that you were in way back there, I'm sure you way overpaid for that thing. And that oh. actually wasn't that bad, but in terms of technically you're less than a mile's walk from the beach, but given what you can get within a half a mile, is it yep. really worth what you're paying? So, I mean, in terms of supply and demand, yeah, those guys are making, they're probably still making a killing. Oh, they're, they're killing it. They're absolutely killing it. Every day I'm like, I can't believe what we paid to live there in those fucking shitty house, shitty, roach-filled, horrible places. And I knew the difference because when I went to school in Daytona Beach, Florida, <laughs> I realized I can't believe what I was paying to live in Santa Barbara. That's crazy. I was on the beach too. I was on the beach you could drive on. Yeah, I was there and I was paying one fourth the cost. It's, uh, it's crazy. It's, uh, you know, everyone just accepts it there until you get out of there and you're like, what? What the hell? How, yeah. do, that? <laughs> like, how do you, how do you not believe in rent control after you live in a place like that? There is blips of paradise in the world. And that was definitely one of them. Oh, uh, I know. I, and it's funny how it all comes flowing back because, you know, I sent you that picture when I was in your in and out when I was on my way to Solvang. And uh, it was, it was, it just, it just immediately, I haven't been, I haven't been back since graduation. 
that's how long it's been for me. Yeah. And uh, it was it was something to see it all. And I was like, man, not, it, not much has changed. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the idea is they didn't want it to change. That's why you couldn't have a business storefront. You had to work out of a house. Like that was the, that was the whole idea of the area. <laughs> I can see, I can see your wheels turning. Oh man, so many stories like that. That would be an episode by itself of all the fun times we had there. Well, then you got to get more people on them because there's some stories I remember and there's some I don't. And so yeah. I have to hear them. Yeah. So <laughs> I was thinking about that. Are our kids going to go to college? That's weird. Interesting thought. For whatever reason, I'd love to have an expert explain this to me, but for whatever reason, the cost of college has gone up exponentially above inflation, right? Like 2000%. So what it used to cost to go to college when, you know, our parents went, or even what it used to cost for us to go to college is astronomically lower than it is now. So you have these massive online open courses, right? Where kids can get uh, an MIT education without the piece of paper. They can do Harvard and Stanford, and they can find coursework from all of these elite universities online that are mostly free. And now that they've shut down all of the schools, like Santa Barbara is empty. Yeah. There's nobody going through Stork Plaza. There's nobody in IV. Like it's, they kicked everybody out. They sent them all home. And now all schools are going online. So you're looking at what could be considered a, a rapid acceleration of digital technology and education. And I know the universities can handle it, but at the elementary school level, my seven-year-old's in the second grade and they were just barely understanding that a Chromebook existed. She still uses transparencies on one of those overhead projectors. Like all of a sudden they have to do digital classes. He's got to do reading, writing, phonics, PE, art online. And I set him up over here at a little, a uh, little table here. Mm -hmm. And so he sits with his, with his headphones on and he rocks out in his Chromebook and uh, you know, I help him navigate the web and all that, but he's got to do research on African animals. He's got to do something on the great white shark. We have to find words that have oi in them so that he can study his vowels. And we're doing all that here at home. I don't have to huff him off to a school. The teachers don't have to worry about, do they have paper? Do they have supplies? Do they have to go buy it on their own salary? And I'm wondering now, college was so expensive before all this and people were starting to look at alternatives. And now college is online. Do you need $1,200 a unit to fund an old brick building so that somebody can say they went to an elite university when they have to shift everything over to an online system? So thinking about that, I've seen some articles that say, do you need a four-year college experience? Now, personally, I think you do. I don't think you'll ever get the, the experience that we had living away from home, working, waking up and going to school. Like there was an element of keeping up good grades in a party school. I think that's, people don't like to talk about it. And it's probably taboo, but I think that's a skill. If you can go to school at a party school like that, and you can manage to go to class and get good grades and show up for work and not get fired. That shows a level of discipline and drive. Yep. The question I think of now is like, my youngest is pretty close to yours. Are they going to need college in the it's traditional fair. sense? It's a fair question, but I'm a I am a huge proponent of yes, you have to. I mean, I, I, I can't subscribe to a society where our interaction with each other isn't personal. And I, I can't, I can't. So I get it, I get Facebook, I get Twitter, I get TikTok, I get all that. I get everything that's going on. Uh, we're getting information faster. Uh, you know, I know what you know, some of my friends ate for lunch today. I don't know that I needed to know that, but I know I do now. Uh, there's all kinds of information I don't give a shit about that's on 
out there today. One thing you need is interaction. I mean, you probably can't remember that many specific things that you learned in your classes. I can't. What I did, re what I did learn is how to work in a team, how to start a project and then a project, how to interact with other people, especially people that aren't like me because there's so many. And if you don't get those skill sets, you don't belong in the workforce. I don't care if you're remote or not. Uh, and I think that you actually do get them faster in person than you do over the internet. Now, I get what we're at, and this is, I think it's a great stopgap. I hope it doesn't become, become a permanent gap. I, I don't think, especially the younger generation, it's, it's not a great fit. I think, you know, as we start, you know, at my level where I'm at, where I, I'm, I'm a leader, I try to lead people. Uh, I have all types of generations uh, that I lead. There's people older than me and there's the new people right out of college. And there's quote unquote, the uh, millennial generation and all the stigma that comes along with them. Some of it's true. Some of the instant gratification stuff maybe is a little bit different, but I'm, I don't know that I was any different when I came in. I, I wanted to conquer the world immediately and how quickly can I do it? But what is a little bit different is there is becoming this expectation in the workforce that I can work from home. That started, that started two or three years ago. How much can I work from home? How much can I do the work you want me to do on my schedule? And that's a very hard thing, no matter what the business is to achieve uh, that goal. I do think that this pandemic is going to slingshot a lot of companies into work from home programs. Keeping a brick and mortar built building is, is, is not cheap. That's you expensive. Know, it's expensive. And if you're functioning, a lot of businesses, mine is functioning nearly just as well working from home as being in that brick and mortar. There's something to it, right? Yeah. There's something to say, mm, do we all have to come in? I don't know. But I, in a school atmosphere, uh, when you're trying to learn, yes. And, and I would still, I'm even, I'm even backing up on my own thought. I, I think in about, in about a month, I'm going to go fucking nuts. I got to go in. I got to talk to people. And half the people I talk to don't turn on their cameras anyway. So my immediate impression is all you're doing is rolling your eyes at me this whole fucking conversation. So I'd love playing cards yeah. yeah, or playing cards or not paying attention or you went to the bathroom. I don't know. I don't know if you're there. I don't think it's going to become a permanent thing, but I do think that there is going to be a higher market for work from home jobs after this. That's going to yeah. happen. hundred percent. I agree. What I thought of immediately is uh, along the lines of what you're thinking is there's a couple of things popping in my head. One is, as a leader at an executive level like you're at, you really have to be specific about what it is that you're measuring because it was easy just to say, show up at eight and leave at five. And that's how you measure somebody is punctuality. Then once you can no longer watch them come and go, once their camera is off, once you don't know when they're clocked in or not, it really becomes tougher for the manager now to measure performance because now you got to know exactly what you wanted them to do. In certain positions like sales, it's you make your numbers or you don't. Yeah, in certain positions like accountant, you, you turn in these spreadsheets on time. Yeah. If it's a call center, and I got a separate thought about call centers altogether. But in some areas where there's a very specific metric, no problem, go home. Do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You're going to get judged at the end of the month. That's right. When you're managing a more creative endeavor, such as 
the quality of a graphic design or the ability to think outside the box with a creative solution to an IT problem. It's not as simple as a distribution job where you ship X units in X hours. So I, I think what it's gonna do is it's gonna push back on the management system of most companies to say, how are you actually measuring performance and why can't they do it from home? Yeah. There is absolutely though, you gotta come in and you gotta to talk to somebody face to face. Like you can't be an asshole behind the keyboard. You know, and no. you, can't, you can't slough off and not shave and wear sweatpants and jerk off in your free time. It's you got to put on a shirt. You got to make sure your shoes look nice. You got to come in. There is absolutely an element of that because I think human human connection is what separates us from robots. But I, I start to think about this whole idea of online. If the business can be done online, then that allows for such a flattening of the work environment and of employment and labor markets. So the, the call center thing is I ran a call center. I thought I ran it okay. And the hardest part I had was I couldn't get rid of people. And I couldn't get rid of people for whatever reason. And what they say is California is an at-will state, right? It isn't. If somebody's over 40, if they're a certain ethnicity, if they're a certain sexual orientation, they're what are known in state labor laws, these protected characteristics. Class. Yeah. So you can't get rid of them. Then there's also this notion that because it's California, because it was the area that we grew up in, there was a higher caliber of employee and you had to pay them more. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think that applies. So now if you sent them all home and they don't have to be in California to get the job done, you've now opened up your availability to recruit from multiple time zones, multiple levels of economic strata. You can find somebody with the type of technical degree that you're looking for and you can pay them 60% of what you would pay a Southern California employee because that type of economy really levels the playing field. Yeah. I don't need somebody from Irvine because it's Irvine. I can get somebody from outside Kansas City that will have the technical capabilities and the personality I'm looking for. So in those aspects, uh, I think that this is going to drive forward efficiencies of business. And I think it'll give an opportunity for the small guy to attack the big guy because you don't need that kind of scale. Absolutely agree with what you're saying. You got to come in. You got to look somebody in the eye. You got to be a human. Look, the, you know, I uh, I spent a lot of my career managing suppliers. I have over two thousand suppliers I manage, and they're worldwide. I have to, by the nature of my business, do a lot of that over the phone. But nothing replaces going and actually face to face seeing them, having lunch with them, going and seeing them at a conference. You know, spending some time with them. It's a different connection. We can all pretend like we're robots. We can all pretend like we're all about the KPIs, all about hitting the metrics, hit that number. We're still human. You can't take that out. There's no KPI. There's no metric. There's nothing you can put around it. Yep. Uh, you know, business is actually, you can put whatever Webster's definition on it, but it's really a relationship that says money's going from here to here, right? Yep. Don't forget the relationship part. That's a part, right? Apple has relationship with their owners right? Or with their people. With they, when they say, you know, I'm an, I'm an Apple guy. I'm on an Apple computer talking to you with my Apple phone in my hand, right? Why am I so fucking loyal to Apple? I couldn't tell you. But for some reason, I feel like I have a relationship with this company and I want to continue with them. Yeah. And that not always, and, and why is that? Sometimes I go and I talk to the geniuses in the Apple store, which I think is really cool. I don't know why I think it's cool. It's the simplest store in the whole planet, but I love it. I go in there, I love it. The, the relationship piece can't be missed. Apple wouldn't be who they are if they didn't have their cool Apple stores, you know? And they, if you ordered everything Apple online, you'd be missing some. The only companies that I know that have really pulled it off well is the Googles and the Amazons. Like somehow they figured it out where 
You don't have to have too much of a personal interaction. Although if you've noticed through this COVID-19 uh, response, you're starting to see commercials from them. These are our heroes. They're keeping the stuff moving. They're trying to make that personal business connection for you to say, we're not this electronic being where people, you know, supporting you. That, I mean, that's an effort. That's an effort on their part. But I, I think uh, maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm the old guy in the room now. But I really do think that personal interaction will never go away. It's the most important part. Uh, you can't take the human element out of humans. You just can't do it. No, I agree. I agree. The, the cornerstone of any brand is trust. And trust is a human element. You have to have the ability to trust a brand and people like dealing with people. If at some point Amazon and Google now become machine-like, at some point you were dealing with a human and the human is who established the relationship with the person that you trust when you got a recommendation from them. So that, that human element of trust may pass down generations or from person to person. So you may be at the nth degree of the person that dealt with somebody at Google and now you trust Google, but it's because the trust passed its way down to all of those people. So I, I 100% agree. You may start to see more of Amazon trying to develop a face for itself because at some point they may get lost in becoming a machine and then you're dealing with a machine. You can have trust with a machine. Like you love your phone. You, you love the person who designed it. You love the person who made it. You like the feature set because you understand the designer knows who you are. Uh, but you're right. There, there has to be some interaction with that piece of technology or that company because the ones that don't have a human element, why would you bother? Yeah, there's something about it. There's something about it. I we're, think we're uh, talking specifically of customer ser uh, consumer goods firms, but like, um, there's a reason that people vilify the Koch brothers. They don't know what Coke Industries does. I mean, could you look it up? If you go to their website, it says, yeah, we're industrial and synergy and economies of scale. And it's all gobbledygook for somebody that really knows what they're looking for. But you probably wouldn't know that they make the emulsifier in your mac and cheese. Yeah. So I, I absolutely agree with you. There is, there is a human element. There is a trust factor. And if you're coaching younger kids, they need to understand that that's important. It is important. We're still human. No matter what happens, we're still human. Much yeah. as much as your friendship and relationship exists online and, and maybe and, you know maybe we're becoming dinosaurs and maybe that's the new generation and relationships exist online but they don't now they don't right now you get a lot more done when you go out and see somebody and talk to somebody and look them right in the eye have a drink with them have a sandwich with them yep. it's a different it's a totally different scenario Absolutely. and you do when you're making decisions you think about that you think about that personal relationship with them um, what you know about them why do you still do in-person interviews? Why does that still exist? Because you want to, you can answer everything on a questionnaire. I can get that information. Yeah. You do it because you want to know who you are. I want to know who you are. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to make, I want to know. Now you may be a fantastic actor. You know, you're acting to me and telling me what a great person you are. And I'm acting to you and telling you what a great company I am. But at the end of the day, we're going to figure out something in between. We've both been lying a little bit, but you know, are we still a good match on the key points that makes it important? So yeah, I those, no, those live interactions allow for improvisation. You have the availability to, you know, what we would call in drama school, live in the moment. You know, you can't get that on an email. You don't get tone. You don't get body language. You don't get the real visceral life experience of what it is to sit across from somebody actually look at them. You can find elements of it in a video format like we're doing now, but you really can't 
develop trust with somebody over email. Even chat, you're just not going to find that in the written format. So there has to be some person-to-person connection. And I think that's what you're talking about. There's a live interview does that. It forms a connection. So even if you're the outside viewer looking at it on a TV screen, you can still see a connection between people. And if I had my way, I would do this whole thing live. Yep. And I'm, I'm using Zoom because it's convenient. I'm actually getting a hold of people that want to have these types of conversations. But I would love to sit down and clink glasses and giggle all night. Because uh, we would. This was fun. I got to go out and jump in the pool now. You know, I don't rub that shit in my face. I have to uh, put another sweater on. So, go go fuck yourself with your pool. I got to go put a blanket on. So, whole story for you. I love you, man. This place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>